Welcome to the Zen of Everything, a Zen take on life, love, laughter, and everything else. With Jundo Cohen, a real Zen master. That's me. And Kirk McElhern, that's me, a guy who knows a bit about Zen. So what I don't understand is we are up to episode 97 of this podcast, and every single week you have problems getting the... Hold on. You have problems getting this to work. You don't know anything about your microphones, your computer, podcasting, or anything. I don't know what I did wrong. I did everything I've done before. I know what I did. I know that what I did was right, but I don't know why it's not right. (laughs) That's our theme today. I don't know. Yes, I don't know. You know, it's funny. You, you sent me an email just a few minutes before we started suggesting this topic. That, that's how we work. We, we improvise. We roll like that. We pick our topics at the last minute. And you want to talk about the practice of not knowing, which reminded me that my signature in the forum has probably been since the very beginning is I know nothing. And I've always felt that I know nothing, but that's a good thing. Socrates said, know your own ignorance. And this is the doorway to wisdom. And the Zen masters from ancient times have said much the same thing, though the meaning is a little different. The Zen masters meant that not knowing can actually be the doorway to knowing everything. It's kind of the idea that if you don't know things, you're more receptive to finding out about things. As the famous line, which probably launched a thousand Zen ships in the United States um, from Shunryu Suzuki's book, in the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities, but in the experts, there are few. If you know everything, you don't have possibilities. You're not open to what could be. If you have that beginner's mind, that naivete, you're ready to accept any possibility. That is exactly right. And it's very important to have this fresh mind that recognizes that life is always changing and to kind of dance through it and respond to all the changes and be open and creative and, and always welcoming of all the changes. That is very important. It's, it's one of the reasons so many artists are attracted to Zen because of the spontaneity, like us, who makes up the topic five minutes before we go, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, on the air here. It's very fitting. Yes, that is one of the meaning in Zen of not knowing. And there are many others, and I hope during the next few minutes we can cover all of them, because I'm telling you, it's all about also knowing everything. Yeah, see, that's the paradox. This is one of these koan things. You you say that you don't know anything, but you really know everything. And then someone hits you on the head or cuts a cat in half, and you know that you don't know anything, but you really know everything, right? I don't know. (laughs) Maybe. Maybe. I don't know. I don't know what you just said. But yeah, it's uh, that's that's right. There's uh, the aspect in our practice, first off, of like so many people these days are convinced that they have the answer 
sometimes it's a strange answer, a conspiracy theory, this or that. People are hesitant to admit their own ignorance. We all grab these opinions we have. And Zen is about putting down so many opinions, listening more, uh, allowing that we could all be wrong. This is, this is very important and something I think we need to remember uh, in society these days. Imagine if there was some sort of Zen social media where people wouldn't just disagree. Someone says, ooh, the sky is blue out there. And you've got 17 people saying, the sky's not blue. What are you talking about? And anything on social media is all this hostility because people just want to disagree. They want to show that they know better. Well, the role in our uh, forum is please agree to disagree right. on things. And, and, the funny and that's thing why about... we avoid politics in the Treeleaf Forum, even though occasionally a little bit of politics seeps in, but it's pretty much to be avoided. Yes, but even even then, you should uh, state your opinion and and be open to other opinions. And and also these days we've forgotten how to be open to evidence and science, which is definitely a way of knowing certain things about how the world works. Uh, don't just uh, believe anything you find on Facebook, make sure there's reputable evidence behind it. There's nothing about being a Buddhist that prevents you from also being fact-based and knowing uh, when someone's making something up and when it actually has some, some uh, grounding to it. Unfortunately, in society, too, we've lost this. But I'm telling you, not knowing we're going to get there is a way to know the universe. We'll get there, too. Well, let's get there now. Well, let's get there now. Let's go straight into the heart of this. Okay, well... What does that mean? Not knowing is a way to know the universe. We, we've covered not knowing in which we realize how stupid we are. I mean, I'm never going to know how to fly an airplane. Uh, very unlikely at my age. Let's see. I don't remember who my fifth grade teacher was. I do not recall the, the capital of Laos, except I just Googled it, and it's Vientiane. Uh, many things I do not know. I, I do not know if there's life on other planets, but I suspect so. Part of Zen is allowing us not to know. But some people think that, oh, Zen is then all about just recognizing our ignorance and flowing with it. No. The, the old saying that Zen lets you know truly who and what you are in the universe, there's truth there. There's truth there. I'm going to explain to you how that works. Are you going to enlighten our listeners today? That, an enlightening Zen podcast. Imagine that. <laughs> yeah. So let's go back to old Bodhidharma. Bodhidharma was the fellow who brought Zen from India to China, and he meets the emperor, and the emperor says, who are you? Never having met Bodhidharma before. Bodhidharma says, I don't know. I don't know. Now, this doesn't mean that, first off, Bodhidharma was kind of I, I, you know, to, to kind of say that to the emperor, you got to be pretty brave, I think. Yeah. You know, but it doesn't mean he was daft. It doesn't mean he's having a midlife crisis. You know, I don't know who I am. I'm like, bear my life. What's it? He knew who he was. But here's the trick. You got to drop the I from the I don't know. Mm -hmm. And when you drop the I and the object to be known you drop the subject and the object, there remain just the verb of knowing. Hmm. This is the kind of knowing that I believe Bodhidharma meant. Otherwise, he wasn't much of a Zen master. 
Okay, so, but for him, it was don't know. It wasn't no. It was I don't know. Okay, so the I is important here. If you think that there is something to be known that's apart from you, and if you think that there's a knower who stands apart from it, you're missing a certain kind of knowing, which is the unification of what is and you, which is not two different things. And that leaves just this knowing. That is one kind of Zen knowing. Now, I'm, I'm going to give you another uh, a, a kind of little parable I like about the sailor. Have I told you the sailor parable before? Um. I don't remember this one. Does it have to do with spinach? No, that's, that's the Popeye parable. Okay. This is a different one. Okay. And even if I, I, I've told you before, pretend you don't know it. Exactly. And you've not heard it before. Exactly. Right. So there's a sailor out in the middle of the sea, and she's sailing. She doesn't know what tomorrow's weather will be. She doesn't know every bend of every coastline in the world. She doesn't know the name of every fish or how many fish there are in the sea. She doesn't know where the sea came from. She doesn't know what's over the horizon. She doesn't know. But she dips her finger into the briny salt, puts it on her tongue, and she can taste everything. And what she tastes is that the sea waters, the fish, the sky, the shore, the sun, the boat, the sail, the wind, all the sailors, not just her, but her too, the sailors. One thing, which is a great, shall we say, sailing or flowing. It's that same knowing. That's how she knows the whole sea, right there on the tip of her tongue. It's very much like the tea master picks up his tea and, uh, you know, the tea ceremony is a big thing in Japan. Well, you find the whole universe in the teacup. You clear the mind, and right there on the taste, it's the same taste that the, the sailor has when she tastes the whole universe, the whole world, the whole ocean on the tip of her tongue. That's how you taste everything. And can we get this in other ways without tasting seawater? Because that's not the most extraordinary taste. I think if we're just receptive to the universe, we can get this at any time. When we look out at the sky and we see that not the sky, but the sky, we get this feeling. When we look at the blade of grass and realize how it's interconnected with everything else, it's the same thing, isn't it? It's not just interconnected with everything else. I mean, that's true. All things are interconnected, and we are parts of a great whole. We're parts of the world. We're parts of society. We're parts of the universe. We're made of stardust, right? We're all parts. Parts within parts. But it's more than that, Kirk. It is the whole, and it is all other things, according to Zen belief. Right. As I've often said, you are the tree outside podcasting. <laughs> and the, the, the tree is the podcaster, Kirk, growing in, into the, from the ground. You see, the star in the sky is the tree and the mountain shining above, and the mountain is the star and the bird resting on the ground. The bird is the, you get it, the teacup flying in the air. That's how identical we truly know everything. So if you learn in your practice to taste anything, hear anything, see anything, touch anything, you can also experience like the sailor, the tea master, all things and everything. 
So with the sailor example, she dips her finger in the water, she tastes the briny salt, but she is not thinking she's tasting the briny salt. She's not labeling it as salt and seawater. She's just tasting the thusness of it, to use another Zen word. Zen basic teaching is the minute you think it's a thing and stick a label on it, you're creating the separation. You're also making it small and trying to stuff it in the stupid box between your ears. That's why when we <laughs> sit Zazen, we put down the naming, we put down the thoughts, and all that remains is the wholeness, in which there is no separation or division in categories and names and labels. That is truly how you can experience, not only you experience the whole thing, you are the whole thing experiencing the whole thing. Because the whole thing is you. But as I often remind people, when I say the whole thing is you, don't let that go to your head because the whole thing is also everything else, which is also everything. It's uh, almost as if you're sitting on a throne. You're the king of the universe, but so everything's on there too, like that. Um, so there is an absolute and a relative nature to this, right? The absolute sure. nature is what you just described, but in the relative nature, we have to we have to know what things are. We have to know how to drive a car. We have to know how to cook meals and things like that. So we have to keep that balance between feeling the absolute because we don't understand it, right? We feel it. It it's visceral. It's not it's not a cogent process of thinking it through. We have to understand that absolute and yet still navigate through the relative, right? Exactly. I mean, sometimes the, the self can drop away so much that you, you truly experience, you truly, shall we say, you, you, you witness, you are this flowing of all things, flowing in and as everything else. You know uh, everything. Yeah. It's as, <laughs> I'm loving the loss for words. It's fitting. Mm. Uh, as much as you know the love in your heart by your feeling it, you, you know the music when it sweeps through you and overwhelms you, like that kind of knowing. Can I ask a question? Because there's something I've always felt. We, we want comparisons, right? We want to be able to label things and why things are what they are. Could we say that this knowing is kind of like when you're listening to a joke and you get the joke? Yeah. And all of a sudden, you get that laughter that's spontaneous because you got the joke. That's why so many of those koans are kind of funny. Yeah, yeah. they are jokes. Yep. I mean, good jokes. Jokes about, oh, this is what it's all about. Yeah. Because, you know, you're, you're exactly right. We have to live in a divided world where we're just parts of things and th there's the other guy who's not us and we make choices. And this is where we survive and where we live because we can't live in the wholeness, really. It's impossible to actually live there because we need to put our pants on in the morning. And you can't do that if you're just one with your pants like that. But <laughs> well, the problem is most of us are lost in the divided world. And when we taste the wholeness and realize that it's the same thing, it's freeing, it's liberating. Even death, I told you, disappears. And we live in a world where things come and go and we're born and we die. But in this other realm... We're dropping words like I and you and coming and going and after is not after. There's no before and past and after. It's all this great one thing. How can anything come and go and die in that? 
because it's so whole. It's kind of weird. I know language doesn't work on it because language is about subject, object, and predicates and all that. Language uh, it has its limitations here. And so there's a risk of living in the divided world because when we do get the taste of that wholeness and knowing whatever it is, it's very tempting to want to chase after it. And then you get to the point where you can never taste it again because the only way you can taste it is by not trying to taste it, right? Well, it's like a morphine or something. You can, you can taste it in a way that way. And it is very dangerous because uh, we need to get back to life. The trick of this practice is to, to realize that both sides are, uh, shall we say, two sides of a single mirror. And uh, we, we need uh, the mirror must have its front and its back to be the mirror, something like that. And so we can, but so many people in, in, in spiritual pursuits, not just in Zen, think they get this whole state. And the point is to get there, to stay it, to get past this world. And I tell you, the Zen masters said, no, live in this world with all its kookiness, with all its frustrations, with all its sadness, and the, the beautiful and the ugly and all of it. But know this wholeness that sweeps through it. You can taste this. Because we drop the stupid questions. Ask me about the stupid questions. What are the stupid questions? Well, for example, if we, you know, so many things, you, you read books about 300 years ago and the things they were concerned with and debating, and you think, boy, how are those people so upset about these stupid <laughs> things? As if we, we were having a big debate about how many flying rabbits are there on the moon. And we were all torn up and we were divided into factions the pro rabbit faction, the anti rabbit faction. The people who believe there's lots of rabbits on the moon, the people who believe all these things. This is the, the, the questions we make. Uh, which faction are you in, by the way? They don't want you to know about the flying rabbits. Shh. Shh. <laughs> don't tell them about the flying rabbits. But so many of the things we think are real that we take for granted, I'm telling you, are flying rabbits on the moon. And there are things you think are obvious. For example, if I say, what is I? Who are you? What, how does the present become the future? Where do we go when we die? What were we before we were born? Now, in a, to a certain extent, those are real questions. Where, how did we pop up in the middle of time and space and be here in life? And then we're going to die or we're going to go someplace. But I'm telling you, some of the answer comes when we drop from mind the flying rabbit because they're just kind of figments of our imagination we're only creating. And those include, the I is a flying rabbit. You are a flying rabbit. Coming and going at birth and death are a kind of flying rabbit. When you drop the flying rabbit, the rabbits just disappear, and so do all these questions. And you find you, in a sense, of course, we're going to be born, you're going to be here for a while, you're going to get hit by a bus, you're going to die. Sorry. That's going to happen. That's samsara. But the other one is, from the other perspective, you come from nowhere else, and you go nowhere else because there is no place else. You're the whole thing. And as long as this whole thing, which we might call the universe, we might try to put names on it, though those, again, those names are limiting too. So we got to get past those names. But when we drop even those names, whatever that is, I'm going to call it the great wholeness, the whatever, with a big W, that's you. And as long as this whatever keeps whatevering, you're not going anywhere, Kirk. After the Big Bang, the universe didn't name itself. It didn't come up with a logo and a theme song. It just was. 
if they yeah if they ever found the made in china tag on it or something <laughs> yes that would be yeah no no there's no and people say here's another thing people say the universe is vast and we are so small and this is another i think we're vast and the universe is vast just the same vastness that we are you got it because if you are the universe you are as vast and small as the universe is and people think, well, wait a second, no, we're, we're just these little things in the universe. And I say to you, you are as much the universe as your fingers are you. Are your fingers you, Kirk? And you're going to say, oh, no, you're going to think about it. No, they're part of me. No, the, your, your fingers are you. Your eye is you. Your hearing is you. Your heartbeat is you. And this is in the same way when you turn the other direction. So thus are you the galaxies and the stars. Thus are you... All the events that have happened since the Big Bang, as much as you are the hairs on your head. Bad example in your case, but uh, <laughs> you understand my point. Yes. So if you take this to its absolute level, understanding that we are everything and everything is us would not only get rid of all the idiots on social media who troll people and want to start arguments, but it would lead us to take care of other people and our planet in a much more wholesome way, wouldn't it? Well, as soon as we start fighting about who's more the universe than the other guy, I guess. <laughs> you know. Down here in Samsara, we're going to still have opinions and disagreements, you know. What was the phrase in Animal Farm by George Orwell? All animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others. In this case, we're, we're all the farm. <laughs> <laughs> And the rabbits. I like the idea of flying rabbits on the moon because, of course, they exist. If you can just imagine that they exist, well, they exist, right? In your imagination, you know, this is a, a getting not everything we imagine, I would say, is true in the same way. Hmm. But what I'm describing to you is not something, you know, this is not Jundo's weird idea. This is not something I'm just trying to, to, to convince people. I'm telling you. The human brain divides the world into pieces, including subject and object. And we, from one interpretation of ourselves, we think we end at the skin. But there's no reason you cannot say that you are not only all the parts in your body, your, you know, all your bones and the skin and the flesh, you know, all of that. You can also look outward and say, oh, we are that just as much. But again, don't let it go to your head because so is everything. So is everything. <laughs> and what does that do? It, 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 it solves in one case the, the, the question, who are you? Because what I tell you, if you look at a star, we think we look up, we see a star. I'm saying you look up and you see the star. My friend, you're looking at the back of your own hand. And also, do, do you know that everything in the universe is at the center? Yeah, that's one of the perplexing things, that every that the universe is expanding mm -hmm. at a certain rate, and that everything's expanding at the same rate, but wherever you go, it's always the center, and everything's expanding from that point. Yeah, and that, that you got to explain that to some people. So I got there's a couple of wonderful examples. It's worth taking a minute to explain this, because we feel like we're, you know, you're in the center of your town, or you're in the corner of your town. You're in the, the, uh, one corner of the, your country. You're on one place on the planet. So we must be in one just kind of not very interesting corner of the universe. But if you look at the universe, first off, remember, it was, a, they say, a singularity at the start, right? And it's just expanding. But it's expanding. It's still a, a singularity that's expanding. 
which means that we're still this one thing, whatever it was. Wherever you are, you're still the one thing. That's one way. And the other thing is, if you imagine the surface, let's say, of a, an expanding balloon, the surface only, right? Wherever you put your finger on the, as a spot on the surface of a sphere is the center of the sphere. Right. And it all goes out. Like Imagine like every place you put your finger is the North Pole, and everything goes out from that to the rest of the globe. And then you go to another place, and it becomes a pole, and the globe expands out from that. Every place in the universe, and this is, by the way, not weird, wacky Buddhist Yeah, this talk. is standard this is astrophysics. Yeah. Mathematics. Yeah. Yeah. So in that sense, every place is the center of the universe. So in this sense, I, I would like to assure all our listeners, congratulations. You look at the stars. You're looking at the back of your own hand from the center of the universe. And to use the balloon example, as you blow the balloon up, it expands, and that's how the universe is expanding. And yet that center point is still at the center until the balloon explodes, and then we go back to a new singularity. I don't know what happens then, but let's leave that for another episode. Yeah. I have no idea what happens after the balloon pops. What happens at the end of the universe? We don't know. Is this universe one of many, many, many other universes? You know, they talk about a multiverse. We don't know. But I'm going to say this. In a sense, if there is a multiverse, you're that. Okay, Roshi, where do we go from here? I don't know. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe in iTunes or in your favorite podcast app. Please give us a rating. Tell your friends. You can check out past episodes at our website, zen-of-everything.com. Thanks for listening.